Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Kerrang's Inside Track, where the world's biggest artists tell the stories behind the most influential moments in rock history. I mean, all the lyrics in Fat Lip were just us just kind of having a good time. They were written really quickly. We were just sitting around and everyone was trying to come up with a line that was funnier than the other guy's line. And the doctor said my mom should have had an abortion. That came from Steve-O. You know, it was just a quick thought. And I don't think we ever really thought it would become such a main part of the song that it did. It's just, it's just one of those things, you know, you're just doing stuff and you're not really thinking about it. That was Derek Wibley, frontman of Canadian pop punk band Sum 41, reflecting on the approach that defined the band's 2001 mega hit Fat Lip and its accompanying tongue-in-cheek titled breakthrough album, All Killer, No Filler. And though the album would go platinum in the United States, Canada, and the UK, a serious feat indeed, it was Sum 41's sense of humor that defined much of their early career. The four-piece celebrated friendship and pop-punk goofiness on tunes that provided an entire generation of music fans with the perfect soundtrack to their own quest for good times. But Sum 41's story starts in the small Canadian town of Ajax, Ontario, in the mid-90s, when Derek met bassist Jason McCaslin, known to his friends as Cone, and guitarist Dave Baksh on the first day of high school in auto shop class. All three had cut their teeth in different dead-end bands, and though each member had his own unique tastes, Derek loved punk rock, Cone loved grunge and alternative, and Dave loved heavy metal, they bonded over their mutual love of music as a whole to become good friends. The following year... Drummer Steve Yach, a.k.a. Steve-O32, entered freshman year and joined their friend group. Derek remembers just how the band eventually came together. There was no local rock scene whatsoever when we were in high school. Um, we were kind of the only musicians in the school. Everyone mostly listened to kind of like, I don't know, 90s R&B, hip-hop kind of stuff. And we liked different forms of rock music. Um, you know, Dave was the best in his band. Cone was the best in his band. And Steve-O and I were already in Sum 41 and we just kind of like, you know, grabbed everybody that we thought was the best in our high school and we put it together. That became Sum 41. The band's name stems from the fact that they finally got together on the 41st day of their summer vacation, playing local gigs before graduating to venues in nearby Toronto. Shows outside of their hometown came with some challenges, one or two of which were, admittedly, the band's own fault as Dave Bax recalls. We were in Ajax a lot, so uh, there, there was a lot of uh, punk rock, metal, indie, like every type of music um, that you could kind of think of, and we would all kind of gather and play at this one place called the Chameleon Cafe. And uh, it was kind of like where we would like cut our teeth in the local scene and stuff like that, and then uh, eventually we were able to play in Toronto and this and that. But uh, the scene for us was a little bit hostile, 
one because we were kind of like assholes like like we weren't uh we weren't mean we were we just had this like us against the world mentality right which i think is important as a uh, as a band but um the uh so we had like rival bands like there was a band called closet monster that we came up with um and uh, we would always fight for like like local bands uh, local bands being on like big bands coming through town so like say gob came through town we'd be fighting with them for the opening slot on the bill but you know we didn't really put two and two together that they were actually the ones booking the shows so we would never get the shows you know and and like on top of that like um we had indie bands just telling us that we were we were trash but uh, we just we loved playing and um when we would play the response would be great so we we knew that we had something and we knew that we were having a blast in order to take things to the next level the four friends knew that they needed to record a demo so the band booked time at metalworks the studio founded by gil moore drummer of canadian hard rock heroes triumph much of the music some 41 recorded there would form the basis for the band's first ep half hour of power as derek explains well, the first thing we went in and recorded was Half Hour Power, and that was somewhat of an unintentional EP. We really went in to make a demo, and we realized that we had a few more songs than we thought, and it was actually sounding a little bit better than just a demo, so we thought we might as well put out an EP. We knew we had enough songs for a record, but like we said, we just really needed something to get out there and start touring with while we finished writing for All Killer. So we, we did half our power. We went out on the road. I just kept writing in hotel rooms and in the back of the van and tried to get enough songs to fill out an album. You know, after about a year and a half of being on the road uh, for half our power, we just decided that we should just go in and start recording for All Killer. With 11 tracks of unpolished, metal-splattered pop punk, Half Hour of Power came to the attention of Island Records, who signed Sum 41 and issued the EP on a subsidiary label in the summer of 2000. Island also set up a series of meetings with potential producers in order for the band to start work on their first bona fide full-length album. When they met Jerry Finn, known for his work with acts like Green Day, Goo Goo Dolls, Jawbreaker, Pennywise, and Rancid, both parties just clicked. Dave picks up the story, followed by Cone. I mean, as far as um, how Jerry Finn came to be, uh, we, we were massive fans of his work already. And uh, the, the, we had to go through a ton of, um, of producers that wanted the, uh, the record, which was, which was kind of like unheard for us. Uh, we, we'd, we'd never been through that type, of, um, that type of process before. So we were actually going out for um, you know, dinners with you know, great producers, guys like Rob Cavallo, you know, uh, Dave Jordan came in and uh, had some, uh, some lunch with us and stuff like that. And uh, we ended up just having a blast with Jerry Finn because he kind of came in and had the exact same attitude that we had, which was like, listen, I want to make the record. We're going to have a blast. I believe that records should, you know, happen naturally and unfold. And his, his technique, he was explaining to us about how he would instead of using all 24 tracks on, uh, you know, an old 24 track analog machine, which is what we use to uh, record the, uh, the record on, he, uh, he broke it down to 16 tracks. And that way the uh, drums could sound fatter, warmer, and uh, you could get um, a good and great bass sound on that as well. And, you know, just his approach, we, we were like, we, we hadn't heard of that type of thing before. And uh, 
it was kind of early with Pro Tools, oddly enough. Um, and he was like, I like to use Pro Tools as minimally as possible. I like to get uh, the band sounding like the band. So we just had a good time with him. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And he, he it didn't matter. He was cool with coming to, to Canada and recording. He just wanted to bring his gear and, and have a place to stay. So we were like, yeah, let's do Jerry Finn. Yeah, I mean, at that age, we were pretty crazy. Like we were, you know, like I said, fresh out of high school and we were, you know, we were torturing our hometown with with a lot of different things. You know, like we documented on all the videos with the squirt guns and eggings and all this stuff. Um, so that was just kind of our pastime. That, that was just out of boredom because we lived in this um you know, hometown of, you know, small, we didn't even have a movie theater at the time. There was no downtown, there was nothing to do. Um, so we just found ways to entertain ourselves that we thought was funny um, on the side of, you know, pretty, you know, being very invested in being a band and wanting to be, have a career in music, um, which we, you know, at, at 19, 20 years old, you don't actually really think about those kind of things. It's just, but it is in the back of your head because we had this chance. We were signed now and we were going to do an album with Jerry. So it was, you know, it was, it was very real. Armed with a renewed sense of purpose, the fledgling four-piece holed up in their local studio and got to work, writing as much material as possible to prepare for the recording process itself. Yeah, kind of how the album came together was, kind of, it was a little bit in pieces. Um, like I just said about the Chameleon Cafe, they had this warehouse in the back. And so we kind of rented out a spot there. And Derek kept coming up with some demos and, you know, like verse choruses of songs. And we'd go in pretty much every day and work on these songs um, and try and shape them to what they were. And, uh, and uh, you know, even when we started doing pre-production with Jerry in Toronto, um, we didn't even have, you know, Fat Lip wasn't even complete, In Too Deep wasn't really complete. Um, we had probably six, seven songs, and we were kind of pre-proing those songs and then, you know, and just constantly writing more and, and rehearsing more as we went along. Um, Fat Lip was kind of the last song that we recorded and In Too Deep wasn't even going to be on the album. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just kind of pieces at a time, you know, we were only, you know, Steve was 19 and we were 20 when we were recording. So, you know, we were pretty new to it all and uh, we had recorded, you know, half hour power, but that was with our manager. And, you know, so it was, this was different because we had this like huge, LA producer up and we, uh, we knew the expectations were higher. We were assigned to Island. And, um, so yeah, we were working pretty hard and we were out of high school at that point, just out of high school. So we all had, you know, basically like part-time jobs so we can basically just do whatever we wanted with, uh, with the music. Ironically enough, the band haphazardly finished writing the eventual breakout single Fat Lip in the studio at the last minute. Here's Derek again. I think my favorite song for All Killer would definitely be Fat Lip. Um, it was the last song that I wrote for the record. Um, I'd been working on it for about six months, and I brought it to the guys about, you know, it was kind of half finished. We started working on some of the lyrics for the the verses. And once we got, we start, it started taking shape, it became really exciting, and I really wanted to go finish it. And it took another few months to actually kind of, you know, come up with the rest of the song and the melody and the some of the riffs and stuff like that. Um, but then once it was finished, it really came together and just had so much energy. I don't know. We just felt like there was just something different about it um, from everything else on the record. And it became my favorite song. Um, and, you know, and then it became the first single. While working on the album, 32-year-old Jerry Finn pushed the band hard, 
becoming a father figure to the quartet in the process. Despite his considerable experience, he was also determined to allow some 41 to cut loose in order to capture their distinct personality. It also helped that he shared their sense of humor. Oh, man. As far as recording with Jerry, there were tons of things that were hilarious. He was like, Jerry was just a hilarious and funny dude. So like he always had you laughing and always had the, uh, the energy in the room up. So even if, you know, for something like, um, as simple as the beginning to crazy Amanda Bunkface, right. We're like, Jerry, just let us, you know, let us punch in. We'll just punch in each note. He's like, no, shut up. You're going to play it properly. You're going to play it right. And you're going to down pick it like the descendants do. And we were like, Oh no. And in the end, like it, uh, it's, um, it just, that part now is associated with that memory. So it just feels good listening to that and being like, Oh yeah, that's that time that, that Jerry really told me like, Hey, you gotta, you really gotta improve here. And there was also a, uh, a show we played at the Roxy when we were, uh, when we were tracking down in LA and, uh, I thought I, I played one of the best shows of my entire life. And I was like, man, that's the greatest. I don't know if I'm ever going to top that. And uh, I walk out and I'm like, yeah, what'd you think, Jerry? He's like, your guitar tone is, is pretty shitty. And I'm like, I'm like, what? And he's just like, yeah, man. Uh, it kind of sounded like you're slapping the strings with a mackerel. And uh, it was not good. So we got we to gotta work on that. And from that moment, I, I really started taking um, guitar a lot more seriously. Um, I had thought at that point that I was I was on my way to becoming a, a really good guitar player, but uh, I didn't I I didn't know shit. I was I was trash. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was a it's probably one of the more funner experiences recording that album. You know, being kind of our first big one. But uh, you know, Jerry liked to party, and we liked to party. So it was it was a crazy time. Like I feel like we were constantly. He he had his hotel. And they kind of backed onto this famous Toronto strip club called the Brass Rail. So we were constantly going there every day, um, or a couple times a week at least. Um, I remember one 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 night we all went back to Jerry's room, and we were all doing mushrooms. And uh, I think J- Jerry just decided he was going to go to bed, and and we we ended up staying. He said we could stay, and we just kind of stayed in his room. He had the suite, so he went to his bedroom. And we wanted to, the sun was starting to come up, and we decided that we wanted the couch out on the balcony to watch the sun come up. Um, so we're trying to slam this couch through the, the, the door of the, you know, of the hotel room, and it wasn't fitting, so we had to take the, the feet off of it, took the feet off the couch, slammed it through the door, um, and then we had these feet, so we just started, you know, we just basically threw those off 20 stories up into the, you know, parking, parking lots where cars were. And, uh, you know, kind of just hanging out, laughing. And <laughs> I remember Jerry waking up and kind of just like losing his mind. Like, what? Like, he basically screamed at us like a father because um, what we had done. And we had basically kind of trashed his, his, his room as well. I think like, you know, the other couches were turned upside down. Tables were on their sides. Um, it was like a bomb hit the room when he came out. And, it was, you know, it was like 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, and he yelled at us so like so hard and we, we you know and when you're on mushrooms any little thing can set you off in good or bad um, so he you know we all got really upset about it and he went back to bed and we wrote him this little note saying how sorry we were and we kind of crawled into his room and stuck it under his pillow and then like tiptoed out of his room <laughs> 
Yeah, and then we uh, went in the studio and recorded the next day. With the album completed, the band prepared to head out on the road, playing shows on the Warp Tour that summer. In April 2001, Fat Lip, the first single from All Killer No Filler, hit the airwaves like a bomb. Nothing could have prepared Sum 41 for the insanity that would follow. The song was suddenly everywhere, topping the Billboard alternative charts and hitting 66 on the Billboard Hot 100, a major feat for a rock band in 2001. First, Cone recalls the song's impact, followed by Derek. I remember well, Fat Lip was out first, and, and right away, um, K-Rock in L.A. picked it up. And we knew just from talking to our label that's a huge thing. And, you know, being from Canada, we, don't, we didn't really know what K-Rock was, but we've quickly learned that it was pretty influential and it influenced every other station in the country. Um, so, you know, that was obviously the first big thing that happened. And then when the album came out, um, it just kind of, yeah, took on this life that we didn't expect. When we first released Fat Lip, I didn't really know what to expect. I don't know if I really had any expectations. I kind of was trying to sort of play down my expectations and, and thought, I it's probably not going to do anything. Um, we were an unknown band, and we just had no idea where this whole thing was going to go. Um, but when it took off at radio and then in, at MTV, it kind of spread and it went all over the world really quickly. And that was definitely something that we were not expecting by any means. We had no idea that it was going to go overseas. Um, we were really only just thinking about North America. And next thing we know, we're hearing that it's doing well in Japan and all over Europe and places like that. Um, and it was just really exciting. I mean, all of a sudden, everyone knew at least that who we were all of a sudden. Whether they liked us or hated us, all of a sudden people knew who we were. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On May 8th, 2001, All Killer No Filler was released internationally through Island Records, announcing Sum 41's arrival on a world stage. The seeds of their success, however have been sown on a more local level during the course of three years of increasingly intense touring. Dave reflects on that time. 
As far as our release for uh, All Killer No Filler, when it came out, we were just kind of thinking that we would be on the long road still. Because at that point, we were uh, we were still, when we would tour, we'd still sleep on people's couches, still ask if we could run the extension cord into the house so that we could power the van. And um, we didn't know that, you know, all this work that we had done leading up to to All Killer, you know, like uh, just touring our, our cassette tape and then touring Half Hour Power thanks to the uh, the Mighty Mighty Boston's for kicking off like our, our, uni- our life in the United States. And then um, all of a sudden, like we had, we had been heavily, heavily touring, like I'd say 200 days plus for about three years at that point. And then, no, two years, it would have been two years. And uh, before that, it was just kind of like um, go for two weeks here, three weeks there. And then um, All Killer dropped and just, it, you could see this groundswell of growth um, I first started to notice it when we were touring with a band, I believe it was Catch-22, old, uh, older ska punk band. And uh, I noticed that the crowds were starting to sing the songs a little bit. And then it all came to a head at Randall's Island in Warp Tour. We stepped out to one of the biggest crowds we have ever seen in, a, in our entire lives. And we were on the side stage of Warp Tour. And I remember the pit being so big that it circled around the merch tents and back around to the front barricade, around the soundboard, and we were just blown away. And we were sitting there, and we were playing in front of, like, people that we we grew up listening to, right? And, you know, afterwards, we're we're sitting there talking to, like, Joe from the Vandals, and he's like, yeah, I had to make sure my merch guy was okay because your crowd was trying to destroy the entire park. And... Yeah, like we had never seen anything or heard anything like that before. And it, it was, that's the standout moment for me. Cohn also recalls the mania of that period for the band. There's cer- certain points um, along the way when All Killer was out that we kind of, I think, all realized this was going to be something kind of big. And one of them would have been Warp Tour. We were, in 2001, we were playing the side stage at Warp Tour and we were on the whole thing. And we were getting massive, massive audiences all of a sudden. And, uh, that was kind of an inclination because I, I knew that people, obviously, for some reason, wanted to see us. <laughs> and we had done Warped Tour two, two years prior, and it was nothing like that. Um, and then, you know, other stuff like all of a sudden we were touring Canada and we were playing hockey rinks, like arenas. So that was big. And then obviously, you know, and then we went to London, England, and we were playing the arena there. So just it started building and building and building. And, uh, and we were just on the road so much, and we were just seeing this thing kind of grow. But everything was happening so fast, and you're so young, and you're just in a different country every week, and um, you're never home, and you're kind of getting exhausted. We were partying a lot, so everything just went by in a blink of a <laughs> blink of an eye. And uh, you know, then you get home and have to start working on, your, on on the next record, and you're you know kind of exhausted, and you're just kind of still going because we have to do a turnaround really quick for Does Look Infected after it was only about you know six weeks. Um, so yeah, I think just things along the way started happening that we were starting to see it grow. For Derek, success came with the added pressure of being the face of the band. The The weirdest thing was being recognized on the street for the first time, for me. Um, I think the song had been out at MTV for maybe about two weeks. And I wasn't ever used to, I never even expected to be recognized on the street. And we were walking down the street in Philadelphia 
and it was like just after sound check and we had a show that night and I was going to go do go grab some food or do some shopping on the main street there and after about a couple minutes like people started coming up to me and then people started asking for autographs and it kind of just didn't stop that whole street and I'd never that never experienced anything like that and I remember thinking wow like the power of tv how instantly life changes the second you're on tv all of a sudden within the space of a few months all killer no filler had sold over a million copies in the u.s alone its platinum status was also matched in canada and the uk as some 41 found themselves playing increasingly large venues in addition to the band's ability to write catchy goofball anthems the individual personalities of its members contributed to their success so, too, did their differing influences. Most specifically, their love of old-school heavy metal. Here's Cohen on the subject. Metal came in um, to our music pretty early on, and, and I think a lot had to do with Dave. Dave was, like, his first band um, when he was 14 was a metal band, like a death metal band. And, uh, you know, obviously, I, I listened to a lot of Metallica growing up, but the first metal album I ever listened to was Injustice for All when I was probably 11. Um, so Metallica was a big one for me. Um, I didn't really know too much about Iron Maiden and you know Judas Priest and stuff until I was probably <clears throat> 16, 17 years old when you know I really started hanging out with Derek and Dave and Steve Moore and they were kind of like, you know, you have to check out Iron Maiden, who, who they actually found out from skate videos because um, they were watching skate videos, you know, watch, trying to see like Pennywise songs and Wagon songs and all that stuff and Iron Maiden would come on. So, you know, I started acquiring a taste for metal back then, but Metallica was kind of my first thing. But I was really into, like through high school, I was more into like alt rock and like more the grunge thing um, and even the post grunge stuff. And then I got into, then I got into really like, you know, obviously, like I said, the SoCal punk stuff, no effects and all that stuff. And then I got into, you know, The Clash, who's still like, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time and Ramones and all that stuff. You know, all that stuff is kind of the gateway to everything. Um, you start listening to one thing and you, you figure out what came before it. For Dave, the Ajax metal scene was particularly important to him while growing up, providing him with a sense of community and identity. Well, a lot, okay, a lot of people say that cliche thing where it's like, you know, this, I, I didn't seek this out. But for real, with metal, I didn't really, I didn't really look for it. It, it kind of just found me. Like I had two cousins that were playing metal. And um, they kind of influenced me to pick up a guitar. And Ajax wasn't the... Ajax wasn't the kindest place to grow up as a, uh, you know, like a Guyanese Indian family. But there was this metal community within Ajax that uh, my cousins had tapped into where it was just like you could wear a shirt and you were part of the family. And we just we would talk about metal. We would play metal. We would trade riffs back and forth. We for anybody that was starting guitar, we had this red profile strat copy that would get passed around to all the new guitar players. And it, it just kind of shaped the way that I appreciate and love music. And I, I always associate metal with uh, how I was raised, which is, uh, you know, a heavily family influence because that's, that's the type of thing we, we grew up with. And that's the kind of thing my cousin brought me into. And, and I, that had a massive impact on me. Derek is also keen to affirm the band's love of heavy music while admitting that said love may not be reciprocated by metal fans. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what metalheads think of us. I, I, I would assume that their metalheads don't like Sum 41. But if there are metalheads out there that appreciate Sum 41, I think it's probably because they would understand that we appreciate 
metal music for real and it comes from an honest place and we've always loved metal and it's it's never been a thing it's it, there's no bandwagon for us you know to jump on it's something we grew up with something we grew up loving and there's a reason why we in fat lip we say maiden and priest were the gods that we praise because it's true the heaviest moment on all killer no filler is the goofy iron maiden inspired metal charge of pain for pleasure the last tune on the record the track was accompanied by a suitably kitsch video that sees some 41 donning denim, leather, spandex, and wigs, morphing into a Spinal Tap-styled outfit. Pain for Pleasure, the whole alter ego band thing, that was another one of those things that there wasn't a lot of thought put into it. It was That came about on the same writing session that we were sitting in the room coming up with lyrics for Fat Lip. Um, I think we'd been spending a lot of time on Fat Lip, and it was just sort of a break uh, in that sort of thought process of, you know, I think Dave started playing a little guitar riff. Steve started jokingly singing over it. And within two minutes, that song, it was a joke song that just sort of got written uh, at the same time we were working on a serious song. That song was recorded at a studio called Signal to Noise. We were working with an engineer called Rob Sanzo. And uh, we were just laughing at old like rock and roll videos and and just being like yo how how like whose man's is this like what is going on right now with with this guy with the hair and and this and that but uh, we still love the music so we decided like yo let's just let's just do this like it'd be hilarious if we recorded a song like uh one of cooler bands like iron maiden so because we truly are like are fans of iron maiden and love that band to this day we uh we came up with pain for pleasure and we just wrote this whole backstory to the band before the song was even written. And then uh, we wrote the song, like, really, really quickly. Like, just just E, D, C, of course, like the, the common, like, heavy metal triplets uh, chord progression, right? And then uh, um, Steve-O was like, I'll be right back. Goes to the bathroom, takes a shit, and, like, maybe 15 minutes later comes back with the lyrics for Pain for Pleasure and we were dying. We were dying. Like we were like the whole session. We were like, I don't know if, if we're ever going to top this song in our entire careers because it just felt so right. I think that was just sort of to break up the mood because we'd been working on fat lips so long. Um, and at the end of it, we just thought, well, we got to record this just for fun. We never thought we would put it out, but we were in a studio. So we thought we might as well. And the same thing with the video. I mean, when we shot the Fat Lip video, we were on a lunch break and we happened to be going through the wardrobe and we found all these funny clothes and wigs like, and we just started putting them on and we thought, wouldn't this be funny if we shoot our own video with our own camcorders for Pain for Pleasure? So we started shooting that video just on our own and the director was in the middle of his lunch and looked over and saw us dressed up and singing along to this song and he just thought, oh my God, this is so perfect. And he grabbed a real camera and jumped up and just filmed us doing this pain for pleasure bit. And we added that onto the end of the fat lip video. And for some reason, MTV played it and it became this thing. And that's how pain for pleasure, the band got started. For all of the humor and hilarity associated with all killer, no filler. The album is tinged with sadness following the passing of Jerry Finn from a heart attack seven years after the album's release. Derek leads the tribute to the band's producer, confidant, teacher, 
and friend. Well, Jerry Finn, who produced All Killer, was a great producer. He was a great friend. Um, we're, we've all been really sad that we we lost him um, a few years back. And I think we had a great relationship with him. Um, he was perfect for that record. Um, he was somebody who was just great to talk to about music, about recording. He taught me so much about producing and engineering. Um to a point where like even when I'm producing and, and recording records now, I still basically just do everything that Jerry taught me. Um, and I still sort of feel like whenever I get stuck with something and I'm working on something, a lot of times I find myself just saying, you know, well, what would Jerry do or what would Jerry say to me right now? Um, and I would feel like I would figure it out because I I know what he would tell me. I know what he how he would react. And I kind of feel like he's still sort of a part of, what I do now. Finn's influence on the band has endured, as Dave, Cohn, and Derek all attest. For me, technically, um, the thing that I always took from from uh, recording with Jerry is that performance is everything. It, you can you can cut and paste and put it on the click as much as you want, but it just doesn't mean anything unless it's got feel, unless it's got a human touch. You know, especially when it comes to something like guitars and bass like the, and drums, like you really need those overtones that uh, vary tones from uh, from time to time. And if you're missing that human element to a record, you'll have a different sound, but you won't have uh, a sound that sounds like some 41. Jerry was he was one of the most fun guys I'd ever been around. Um, he introduced us to so many things, you know, even other than music. I mean, Tenacious D, he was really into. He's into Mr. Show. Um, so he got us out into the, all these comedy programs that we didn't, we had no idea about cause living in small town Canada, um, which kind of like helped shape um, our side of, you know, funny, funniness of our band. Um, and you know, he was just, he was very laid back and he, he just, he was a guy that he would let you record and not breathe over your shoulder. But when you were done, you just kind of come in and check it out and have a couple comments. But he was never, he was never just like staring, breathing down your neck, um, the whole time. He would just basically let you do your thing. Um, and then, you know, he'd basically sit in the, in the lounge for while you recorded with the engineer and come in, check it out, basically approve it and or change some stuff with you and then on you went so it was, it was a pretty relaxed environment and a very fun environment because he he was such a he was also a very funny guy he um i guess because he he was into all these shows and he uh you know we just had a really good time and he seemed a lot older than us at the time but i think he was only in his 20s or maybe early 30s when we did it and you know he was uh you know probably 10 years older than we were but yeah he was he was really fun to be around. Part of being a great producer is just like creating a great vibe for the artist. A lot of times producers sometimes don't even know how to do all the technical stuff, but they know how to get you to do what you need to do. I mean, Jerry was beyond knowledgeable about the technical side of producing, though. I mean, he was, he was so great at that stuff, too. But he was also just great at making you feel comfortable. Today... As All Killer No Filler heads towards its 20th anniversary, the band have had time to reflect on the album's eternal appeal, as well as Sum 41's recently renewed popularity. For me, contemplating those things on why it still works, I couldn't even tell you. Like, this would probably be the first time I've ever really thought about that. 
I think the recycling of music, it's kind of almost like a 20-year process. When music hits the mainstream and, and then kind of goes away for a little bit, it takes a little bit for it to come back. And I, I think that the, um, the impact of All Killer No Filler in you know, 2001 to 2002, I think that it did make a wave big enough to last this long. And I think that things like social media, things like uh, YouTube, streaming services, I do th think that those things have helped in a way to keep this band alive. Thanks to uh, playlists, thanks to music videos that we were able to make, and just thanks to like someone being like, hey, you should check out Sum 41, and then instantly you can check out Sum 41. I don't ever think about things like legacy uh, when I think about our band. I don't know. I, I don't think about is there a legacy of All Killer or Sum 41. I, I, it never enters my mind, really. I just think it was a record that we made that at the time was the best thing that we could have done. This episode of Kerrang's Inside Track was narrated and executive produced by me, Ethan Fixill. It was produced by Kat Jones and written by Kat Jones and Phil Alexander. It was edited and mixed by Kieran Kay at Full English Post in Brooklyn, New York. All music was composed and performed by Ben Hutcherson, and our logo was designed by Matt Dykesel. Special thanks to Mark James, Chris Nary, and Chris Corvaton. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Inside Track wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit Kerrang.com for more information on Sum 41. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 